gun, get your gun, get your gun. Take it on the run, on the run, on the run. And I have a lot on my mind, which is why I can't even really remember the, um, uh, what, like, what's going on here. Sure. So, uh, Matt, uh, catch me up really quick. How are you doing this week? Uh, I'm doing pretty well, Terry. I've been on the road a little bit. Um, you know, I do various uh, defense consulting jobs. I was in Iowa for a couple of days, very cold up there. Uh, so I'm happy to be back home in Texas. Well, that's good to know. I've been here in Philadelphia. Um, it snowed twice over the past two weeks. Oh and uh, yeah, and I'm really sad about that. But um, <laughs> I, uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a wintertime guy. Uh-huh. I'm doing everything I can to sort of like uh, make it through. And I got to say, um, the, uh, the man in the Oval Office is not making my... <laughs> Uh, trudging through this winter any easier. It's, it seems just uh, darker, gloomier, <laughs> colder. The wind is blowing a little harder. Uh, I, yes, that is the tr- that is the truest thing. So I wanted to talk to you about something this week, Matt. Which is we, um, you and I were discussing that. So there's a there's a document coming out yeah. uh, pretty soon. That is kind of like a, a big deal document yeah. uh, that the government has to put out every year. Can you explain that to me a little bit? And then can I explain why this document provides a little relief, but not as much relief as I'd like? Yeah. So so there is a there's a there's a process that every president must follow. It's outlined in various statutes, uh, most notably Title 10 of the U.S. Code. And it requires that uh, the the president of the United States publish a national security strategy, uh, a document that outlines what our objectives are in the world and our our overall approach to meeting them. It's called the U.S. National Security Strategy, and every president does it. Um, if they don't publish one every year, they publish one every other year. Uh, and President Trump hasn't published one yet, uh, but there rumor is that it's uh, there. It's about to be published, and there's a draft copy. Uh, floating around uh, in defense circles, and uh, from what I've seen, it it looks pretty conventional. It looks like a a pretty standard document that is not super different than the twenty previous iterations. So it sounds like what you're telling me then is that it's pretty boring, mm-hmm. and I mean that in the most complimentary of ways. That's right. You want it to be boring. Uh, yeah, you don't want it to be, and and that it's probably not going to deviate a whole lot from national security strategies of the past. That's Is right. That correct? Yeah, and uh, even more surprisingly, it it emphasizes a few areas that are decidedly untrumpian. For example, uh, it goes on at some length uh, with every geographic area, you know, Europe, Asia, uh, etc., Africa, and talks about the importance of alliances. <laughs> And uh, 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 on having cooperative security agreements uh, and uh, being able to work with allies to accomplish our objectives, which, uh, uh, you know, is a bit at odds with, uh, I think, some of Trent, uh, Trump's uh, more uh, infamous statements. OK, so that's good to hear. But let me ask you this. Uh-huh. It sounds to me, just based on what you're telling me here, that what has probably happened is that there are a number of generals and upper-level advisors who probably put this together. Is that a pretty safe guess? Yeah, that's right. This is this process is the uh, the work of the National Security Council, uh, which is uh, overseen by uh, General McMaster, uh, famously the general that uh, that uh, Trump hired after he fired Flynn 
And uh, McMaster is also known as a very eminent uh, military leader and thinker, wrote a great book called uh, Dereliction of Duty about uh, the failure of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and senior military leadership during Vietnam. Uh, And so he's a highly respected, uh, very uh, cogent uh, thinker on defense issues. So he's the one who oversaw the creation of this document. Uh, and uh, it indicates that, uh, you know, sort of the normal national security strategy process is is working more or less as intended inside the White House and inside the Pentagon, uh, despite whatever the administration says. Cool. So the question I have then, if uh, General McMaster helped put this together with the National Security Council, hey, isn't General McMaster the guy who kicked Steve Bannon off of this <laughs> National Security Council? Uh, yeah, w- with the with the approval of uh, of Trump's uh, chief of staff, General Kelly. Yes, he when he took over from from Flynn, he kicked off Bannon. He kicked off a number of other uh, uh, Trump cronies and put some adults back in the room. Good to hear. So the question is, if the adults have made this uh, this this plan, this security outline, essentially, mm-hmm. for how we're going to uh, go forth in the world, how much weight does this hold versus stuff the president says on TV yeah. and in public? That's a great question, right? Because if the president is the commander in chief and he goes on TV and says something that is just uh, shocking, uh, does that mean that the military is then going to do whatever he says, right? Uh, and the answer to that is pretty complicated, right? And, and it indicates uh, the 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 complexity of this system, right? So, you know, on the one hand, sure, the the president is the commander in chief, and in theory. The military has to do what he says so long as the as the orders that he issues are lawful orders. And that doesn't just mean that uh, the military can't, um, uh, you know, go out and just start bombing civilians, which which they can't. That would be an unlawful order. Uh, it would violate uh, the laws of armed conflict in terms of discrimina- uh, discrimination and proportionality. Uh, but it also means that the military can't violate federal statutes which govern the how the military is administered, right? For example, the president of the United States could not just close a base uh, because there's a lot of different laws that, that have been enacted over the years by uh, that were championed by various congressional representatives that, ha- that say, for example, that um, Grand Forks Air Force Base in North Dakota has to have 1,500 people stationed at it at all times. <laughs> that's, actually, that's actually a law that's written into the code. And so if the president of the United States were to say, hey, I, don't, I want you to shut down Grand Forks Air Force Base, the military would be obliged to not follow it because that would be an unlawful order. And the, the U.S. code is filled with thousands of these types of examples. So on, on the one hand, uh, the president does have tremendous amount of, of, uh, of power and authority and flexibility and can, admin, and can order the initiation of certain operations. But on the other hand, with a lot more things that actually matter to the uh, administration of national security, the president doesn't have much say at all. I see. So now I have a question. So I was, uh, I don't remember what I was watching, but the president was, uh, was the focus of whatever it was, probably some quick internet video or possibly a, um, a news clip. But 
I was I was looking at something the other day, and this was recent. This was uh, in relation to the recent uh, Senate race in Alabama with uh, Doug Jones winning. Uh-huh. Um, Trump went down to Pensacola, and he did this this big this big rally. And at the rally, uh, he said a number of things that I was just like, oh, ugh, <laughs> and uh, one of them was that. So he talked about NATO because you're talking about this alliance, like alliance building and, and staying with alliances. He gave his his old like it's a stump speech at this point. He gave his old stump speech about how like, no, NATO, certain NATO nations aren't paying enough. Yeah. And he's like, and we're going to make them pay. And if we didn't, then if they don't pay, then then we're out. We don't have time for this. So in a document like this, where they, they're like, hey, alliances, very important. Yeah. Um, how much sort of like, I guess, sway or like how, how worried or not worried should I be about the fact that the president is claiming that he's going to either leave NATO or, or try to kick certain nations out of NATO or maybe just not answer to a call. Like how worried do I have to be that the president is going to just walk out of NATO? <laughs> you should not be very worried. Uh, likewise, you shouldn't be very worried that, uh, that the president is going to just start invading countries uh, or that uh, he would just launch a nuclear war or some of the other things that we've, that we've talked about. Uh, there's, there's a lot of restraining factors that would prevent him from doing some of these just totally off the wall things, uh, one of them is that um, uh, you know that he surrounded himself by uh, by gen- generals who you know have spent their entire careers learning about these things and 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 practicing them and becoming good at administration as much as anything. You know, generals are much more responsible for uh, the administration of the military and management of personnel and management of budgets than they are at actually fighting wars, right? They get tons of experience uh, doing the former and not much experience doing the latter. And that, that kind of tends to be their main focus is that budgetary administration stuff. Uh, and then, you know, there's also the different laws and statutes that require, uh, that require certain things. Uh, you know, the, when, when the Congress writes the military budget, they actually specify the number of troops that are going to be stationed in Europe, right? Uh, and so the president, you know, if the president wanted to increase that number, he'd have to go back to Congress. Uh, you could probably do some things in the short term to put a lot of more troops in certain locations around the world. But ultimately, he's going to need the funding to sustain those force levels. He's going to have to have Congress's authority to do that. Uh, so these things tend to be a lot more symbolic and certainly that's important. You know, symbol symbolism is important and it, uh, it's important that our allies have confidence in us, in our participation in these alliances. Uh, and this, the president's statements could undermine that confidence and lead to greater instability. Uh, but structurally, uh, the president can't make big changes, uh, certainly lasting changes. Uh, and so the focus should be as as what we always talk about every week, the focus should be on, you know, making sure that we have the representatives in Congress that we need uh, to oversee this stuff and to make sure those budgetary resources are aligned with what we think our military should be doing and then uh, hold them accountable to that standard. Okay. So I have a question, uh-huh. um, which this is, uh, you have, you have lit up a part of my brain that, that lights up every so often Uh every now and again i have this thought and then because i'm not on a podcast with you 
um, or usually it's because I'm at work or somewhere where my focus needs other things. This this thought comes in my brain and leaves again. And this is kind of serendipitous that we're talking about this. So based on what you're telling me, this this piece of paper that is uh, about to be about to be released. And it's pretty unconventional. It looks like the the the, the past twenty ish yeah. um, papers of its kind. How much actual influence does any president, not just President Trump, President Trump, Obama, Bush, <clears throat> Clinton before him, how much actual influence does any president actually have over sort of our national security strategy? Yeah. Uh, in from from year to year, especially in periods of of relative stability, and we are actually in one of those periods, right? The you know, uh, it, it seems like there's a lot of things going on in the world, and you know, we've got uh, these very complex operations going on in Iraq and Syria, and still in Afghanistan. Uh, but these are actually pretty small conflicts compared to, you know, Vietnam and Korea and certainly World War II. Uh, w- you know, w- w- barring any uh, sort of asymmetric events like 9-11, uh, the president doesn't have much, really much influence over the long haul trajectory of U.S. policy. And, and that's why... The military has become that's one of the reasons why the military has become this juggernaut of an institution. So, you know, it's the largest bureaucracy that has ever the U.S. military is the largest bureaucracy that has ever existed and controls more resources than any bureaucracy has ever existed. More more resources. Wait, hold on. Yeah. Hold on. I have a question about that. Yeah. So hold on. So you're telling me that the because so like Republicans love running on like. Oh, those bureaucrats. That's right. But but they also love running on, like, they're very pro-military. I just, sorry, I just wanted to point that out. That, like, apparently they are, like, so does that make them pro-bureaucrat? <laughs> well, the thing is, the thing is you, you cannot run an institution as large and dynamic and far-flung and complex and well-resourced as the U.S. military, as the Department of Defense, including all of the ancillary national security components, uh, you know, the um, homeland security elements that are directly related to, to national security, the CIA, uh, and of course the vast defense industrial base. You can't run that stuff without an enormous bureaucracy. And, you know, we, we have about, about a million active duty troops. We've got about another million or so National Guard and Reserve, about half of whom are part-time. Uh, but then you've got about two million government employees who run the Department of Defense, right? It's about a one-for-one basis. And they all are working in different headquarters and different uh, staff agencies. You know, I, I once took a, a, a course on how to administer government contracts where we have contractors fly government aircraft, uh, kind of an obscure area of, of U.S. government policy. And there's an entire base in Richmond, Virginia, that has about 2,000 civilians working at it, whose only function in, in, in the world is to administer and to write the regulations governing uh, the administration of contracts that relate to flying operations. <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> yeah. That is... So so that brings me to something. Okay, so I'm just going to keep piggybacking this. Um because that that makes me wonder. So is 
is there um like i guess is that a good or a bad thing does that make sense is yeah the i mean there's i'm sure there's positives and negatives to that but is is it a good thing uh-huh. or a bad thing that sounds like essentially our military could kind of run or does run <clears throat> pretty independent of of civilian control yeah, you know whether whether you think that's a good it, that's true. It it, it 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 and we're seeing it now. We're seeing that ex, that that uh, that experiment play out. There's a there's a website, uh, one of these journalistic websites that I uh, I, I visit uh, on a daily basis. Uh, it's called War on the Rocks. It's a pretty good website. They they have some good journalists there writing various articles uh, as well as commentary. And there was a uh, there was a, a piece written last week that uh, I thought was pretty funny but also kind of eyebrow raising and it it was entitled uh what a what an honest national security strategy would look like uh with a byline of the adults in the room uh and the premise of the piece the conceit of the piece is that uh you know if mcmaster and kelly and and uh general mattis were honest about what they were writing here's what the here's what it would look like and the and their version of the national security strategy uh talked about uh, how the the uh, the national security establishment has to keep doing its job uh, despite the craziness that's going on in the White House and how uh, they have to sort of manage their relationship with the president so that we could keep the ship of state moving forward um, even as the president says crazy things, right? <laughs> and that's a funny piece, um, but it gets at this larger truth, which is that, uh, you know, there – the entire uh, executive branch of the U.S. government has only a single elected representative in charge of it, and that, that representative being the president of the United States. Uh, it has a number of congressionally uh, uh, congressionally approved uh, you know, sec- uh, cabinet secretaries in charge of it, but uh, that's just a handful of folks. And meanwhile, the whole rest of it is being run by these millions of professionals who spend their entire careers uh, – doing this thing right uh and so yeah it can it runs pretty much on its own uh as long as congress keeps feeding it money and resources uh but and that's that's good when you have a trump in the white house it's it's maybe not as good when you if we were to have a true reformer because there are certainly areas in need of reform and uh reform you know i think as president obama discovered reform is hard because this institution is so vast that it is highly resistant to change. And that was something I was wondering about, just as you were saying that it's good with a Trump in the white house. And I said, and and, and that makes a lot of sense. Like there, there's a part of me and I have, I know people who, who might not feel quite the same way, but there's a part of me that does take a certain amount of solace in the idea that, I cannot stop Donald Trump, nor it sounds like can most of his senior staff stop Donald Trump from going out and just saying crazy things. I've read a number of articles about how Donald Trump views. It's not a surprise. I think we all kind of knew this, but uh, there there was an article I read that and uh, they they were talking to a senior aide or, or somebody, somebody important, you know, one of those guys who's like, oh, yeah, I'll talk to you under the condition of anonymity. But they said that that Trump came in and he wanted. Early on, he probably still feels this way, but he said early on, I want everyone to view each day in the White House as a day where, 
like we are vanquishing political enemies every day. Like, <laughs> wow. like it's like he wanted to, he wanted to, he wanted to view it. Sorry, as a TV show. Every day is an episode uh-huh. where we vanquish a different <clears throat> political enemy. Wow. And the problem in that is that that's not how governance works, right. right? Like governing is incredibly boring. Yeah. Um, and it needs to be. And and I mean, I'm I'm someone who. I understand like the wanting to shake things up or like, I understand resisting very boring work, but very boring work is what keeps um, things stable and not actually chaotic and actually exciting. But the, the thing here is that the president clearly views things through the lens of TV, right? And, and in some ways uh, a, a false reality. Sure. Um, he was a reality show TV star. Uh-huh. And before he was a reality show TV star, he was, a regular in the New York tabloid. So his, his, his sort of relationship with media is one of like presenting a very particular image and leaning into certain things that people might call weaknesses, which he leans into them on purpose because he can then leverage the attention he gets. But the the problem obviously flowing out of this is this isn't really someone who you uh, might be super excited to hear is in charge of like a nuclear arsenal or the the world's largest military. And it's good to know that we have a document that, or we have like, we have like essentially like career employees who are keeping him on track, especially when he gets in front of a camera and starts to say things that he thinks um, will project strength or project the image of himself that he wants to project, which might be very different than what he's presented with on a day-to-day basis. And perhaps that's him blowing off steam. But then the question is the the ability of that of that um, infrastructure to hold those impulses and awful ideas at bay. I imagine, and you kind of touched on this, might have the same <clears throat> strength. Pardon me, at holding like good ideas at bay uh-huh. if someone from the outside came in yeah. and evaluated and said, you know, there's some things that we could do better. And there's some things that maybe we don't even need to be in the business of doing. And suddenly people who have uh, careers at stake or livelihoods at stake um, have, they, they have uh, an institutional sort of apparatus to push back on that. I don't know. I'm not sure where this is going, except that it makes me, it, 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 it reassures me now, but it makes me nervous because I, I do think that there are, it's it's disturbing to think that we have a military that could decide it doesn't want to change. Yeah, if that makes any sense. It makes complete sense. It's and that's that's a, that it, that exists right. That thing that you just described. That's that is a large part of of what we have. Uh, so uh, it's 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 pretty it's pretty it's a pretty well known and often cited fact in in defense circles that the Pentagon, for example has never been audited, right? There's never been a comprehensive top to bottom auditing of how the Pentagon executes the $700 billion budget that it gets every year. And so there's no question that, uh, there is, that it is rife with abuse and that we probably waste not hundreds of millions, not even billions, but probably tens of billions of dollars a year on things that we don't need. Right. Uh, that don't uh, add anything to our uh, war fighting capability um, that don't even contribute to any 
particular objectives, but that we just spend money on because we've either already always spent money on or we have to spend all the money every year or, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why we just go, the Pentagon just goes out and spends money on things that, that are not useful. Um, and it's, it's a problem, right? I mean, we're, we're going to, we keep running these huge deficits. We're going to run bigger deficits with a bigger tax cut. Uh, and yet, a lot, a, a huge portion of this enormous sum of money that we dedicate every year to this national security effort is not really accountable to anybody. It's a, it's a big problem. So let me ask you: This is, uh, and it, I, you know, I don't know if there's, uh, there's obviously not an easy answer to the question I'm about to ask. Yeah. But so you said that so they've never been audited, and we give them about seven hundred billion dollars a year. Mm-hmm. Is that about right? That's that's the latest the, this year. The budget that that Congress just passed, uh, which is the largest it's been in some time, uh, I think was uh, was about seven hundred and two billion dollars. So do we? need to 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 you do we do we need that much money for the military no of course we not. actually need 700 billion dollars if the purpose of the military is actually to execute that document to execute the national security strategy of the united states then then the military doesn't need anywhere close to that and the senior leaders of the military would be the first to agree uh you know one of the reasons why the budget is so big is because congress uh, requires that it do a lot of the things that don't further uh, the the that strategy like so so the Grand, Grand Forks Air Force Base existing is 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 just one of thousands of examples right Grand Forks is up there because it was a, ba- a bomber base during the Cold War when we needed a lot of bomber bases to be ready to fight the the nuclear war with the Russians uh, and then in the as a result of us uh, you know dismantling most of our nuclear arsenal those bombers went away. Uh, but the base didn't because the congressional delegation of North Dakota decided that they wanted to keep those jobs there. And so they found things to do at Grand Forks. And now they fly unmanned aircraft uh, and do. But that's just that's just one example. Right. Congress is constantly making the military do things that uh, it doesn't need to do uh, for national security reasons. But uh, Congress wants it to do for other reasons. And uh, uh, hence the uh, the importance of congressional accountability. So, which takes us to, as we come to every week, making sure that we have, like, the right people, mm-hmm. um, asking the right questions, doing the right things. Yeah. Um, and, I, I, you know, I don't have much, I don't, I don't have a whole lot this week in that area, except that, like, it, it has never occurred to me uh, so deeply as it has right now, sort of how necessary it is to make sure that our congressional representatives are actually upholding our interests and really sort of like really, really talking about the hard issues because, because one of the hard issues I guess would be like, do you know, because I don't, I I'm, I'm going to ask you a question and the answer uh-huh. I'm going to tell you already is I am not aware of anyone except for maybe, maybe Bernie Sanders. Um, do you know of any representative that, has successfully campaigned on uh, maybe less military. <laughs> no, because that seems to be that seems to be a thing that even Democrats have like wrapped their arms around, and they've been like, "Yo, this is a winner." Like we, it's really hard to win if someone says you're weak on the military. That's 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 like a thing that 
that people fight. Yeah. You know, he's weak on the military. They don't, they never like offer another explanation. They never say like, I'm not weak on the military. What I really think we need is a certain amount of fiscal responsibility in the uh, military. And I also think we need to take a look at like what the role of the military is. No one says that. They go, I'm strong on the military. That's right. And they go, what does that mean? And they go, I guess it means I'll keep bases open. Cause I know that like <laughs> Clinton closed some bases in the nineties. And all I remember is that my father who is a pretty liberal, like, like relax, like for a military guy, he's pretty progressive. Yeah. Um, was not pleased. Yeah. He, my, my father was not pleased about those base closures. Um, and I wasn't really old enough to understand to really have an opinion one way or the other, but, um, but I, it, that seems to be toxic. Like the idea of like possibly like cutting back on the military is not a very like, at least in elections, it doesn't seem to be terribly popular. It, it, it's not, you know, and it's really been, I mean, you, you'll get certain, certain politicians who, who have decided, who, who go on a, a pet cause, right? Uh, so, you know, there's, uh, you know, for, for a time, there, there, even now there's a few politicians who say, hey, the F-35 program is uh, wasteful. It's, um, we're spending too much money on it. It's not, um, not you know delivering the goods and so we should think about other things uh, you know there's a very vocal component of congress who's trying to you know the the u.s air force has been trying to retire the a-10 for years uh and congress won't let it won't let them do it uh and part of that justification is that well we still need the a-10 because the f-35 is no good and the a-10 is a lot cheaper you, you get elements of that uh but not since the not since the 80s has there been you know a a a caucus in in Congress who is interested in actually pairing back the military, uh, and then after the Cold War and and through Desert Storm, we had this thing this this idea of a peace dividend. Say, hey, the Cold War is over. Uh, Russia is is falling apart. We have all these treaties now that are reducing the nuclear arsenals of both nations, and so we can maybe save some money. And that was the last. You know, it was it was it hasn't been since 1992 that there has been a large round of base closures approved by Congress. Uh, because, um, you know, at the end of the Cold War, there was an appetite for that. And now there's not. And so, yeah, you're right. Nobody, nobody is really out there saying, hey, $700 billion is just is is more than we need. And and so let's close some bases. Let's retire some weapon systems. Uh, it, it's it's not a thing. It's not a thing. And my the other thing is, so a number of people I know um, do like to make a case for the military providing jobs. Like I know a lot of people who are like, look, sure. you know, having a healthy military provides jobs to the economy. It keeps the unemployment rate down. It gets people ready to go into, they can do like four to eight years, whatever they want in yeah. the military and then maybe transition into civilian life. But is there a certain amount of, um, fiscal irresponsibility with like propping up, Sure. Like, for example, this base you're talking about, propping up that base in North Dakota just because you're like, this rural area of North Dakota doesn't have a whole lot of jobs without this base. Yeah. We need to keep this base. Sure. I mean, if you if 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 all you wanted to do was spend money, spend, you know, taxpayer money to create jobs, there are better ways to do it than through military spending. Uh, because military capability is very, very expensive, and you end up spending a lot of money on technology uh, and on logistics and on gasoline 
uh, and things like that, and not a lot of money on paychecks, right? Uh, if you want to just hand, if you just wanted to put pe- money uh, money in people's pockets, right? You would just put money in people's pockets, right? You could that would be a more efficient way to do it. Uh, the and of course um, the the size the actual size of the uniform military is is constrained by Congress, right? Congress sets the number of people that are allowed to be in the military at any one time, um, and it's not enough. Uh, be, with all the obligations that the military has in the world, the, the military is too small. That is true. Uh, so we would either need to, uh, you know, do less things uh, or accept greater risk in the world if we wanted to further reduce the size of the military. But of course, most of the people who are part of the national security uh, enterprise are not wearing a uniform. They are either government civilians who administer it or members of the enormous mind-bogglingly large like you can't even imagine how big it is uh in defense industrial base (laughs) of which i'm kind of a member and it's it's crazy so 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 okay i'm my i'm so i'm just i'm just doing a lot of free associating today Mm -hmm. but my my thing here is um one of the things that that has been addressed in presidential election cycle after presidential election cycle since 2008. So I guess only three cycles, but it's still 12 years. And we talk about it. Yeah. We talk about this a lot anyway, which is like infrastructure. Like the fact that the, ever since that bridge collapsed in Minneapolis in like 2006 or something, um, you know, people have been like, Oh, the American, you like our actual bridges and roads are like kind of falling apart. Uh huh. I mean, we have a really, we seem to have a very robust military. I mean, aren't there people who build bridges and, like, build roads? Yeah, sure, like, isn't of course that there part are. of what the military does? Can't we put them to work doing that? I mean, to a certain extent, we do. The, uh, the, the Army Corps of Engineers does a lot of those types of projects, especially big, big complex projects like, you know, levees and dams and irrigation canals and, you know, things like that, the management of waterways. Uh, the, the Army Corps of Engineers does that, but what they know, what they base what they mainly do is design projects and then hire contractors to go out and build them. Uh, you, you know, the military does have a sort of a core uh, construction capability. Uh, when I was in Africa, I had a I had a team of twenty six civil engineers uh, out of the hundred folks that I had on the on the base, and their job was to. Uh, build all the things that I needed, and one of the things I needed was uh, a system to uh, to remove the uh, the the water the, the rainwater that accumulates during the monsoon monsoon season in in West Africa, and because our little compound would constantly flood, and so they had to build this system of trenches to to uh, run off the uh, the rainwater and then j- dig a giant pit that it would run into in the middle of the Sahara. <laughs> So yeah, we can we can absolutely and and make concrete and run communications lines and put up lots and lots of tents. We we yeah, the military has a core capability to do that. I don't know that they could. It would be tough for them to go out and do major construction projects like rebuild our roads. That would be a huge project, and and we would contract out most of that. Uh, but uh, certainly, uh, we are spending resources on military bases that have very little public utility. Uh, when we could be spending that money on things that everybody actually gets to use, for sure. 
Hmm. Okay. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk that away. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll have more questions for you next week. I'm like, Matt, I had some thoughts, uh-huh. but I mean, that's well, that's good. To, it's, it's interesting here. It's funny. I'd forgot about the Army Corps of Engineers. Yeah. Um, my dad works currently works for the Army Corps of Engineers. Yeah. Um, and has been doing so for like 20 years. He transferred <laughs> when he when he finished when he retired as a sergeant major from uh, the Army Reserve. You know, he was only like 42 or something, and so. But he he didn't want to do he uh, he wanted to do more civilian ish work. So he transferred to the Army Corps of Engineers, and I forgot about that because he runs a lot of dams and levees up and down the Missouri and Mississippi yeah. River. Um, I think the Missouri River is what he does. But the reason I bring this up is that I totally forgot that like that is like a, a branch of the actual army uh-huh. um anyway it's it's one of those things so hearing this 700 billion dollar thing has kind of blown my mind open i yeah. i knew we spent about that much but i i guess i didn't realize that we didn't um audit the pentagon and that that suddenly a number of things became very clear to me once you said that i'm like oh i see like yeah. this whole idea of an organization that kind of like self-regulates uh-huh. and um, we do have like, obviously we do have like Congress, we have uh, the house and we have the Senate and their job is to sort of, you know, in, in some ways they can hold that money out as a carrot. But I, I got to say like the, the, the environment we're in right now is not one that applauds anyone who, um, who is critical of, the military, especially on spending, like you right. can, you can definitely get some people who might be able to be like, our foreign policy needs to change. Like there's a lot of military debates, but I've found that in the last like 12 to 16 years, we've really solidified the whole, like, um, but they get their funding. Yeah. Right. And, and if you, and you know, if you are a Democrat in Congress, uh, you've got, you know, especially in, you're in the, you're in a very slim minority. Uh, you know, what are you going to spend your? T- what battles are you going to pick? Right? Are you going to go around saying, you know, are you going to pick the things that y- you can actually affect some change and that you know is is very important to your to your base? Uh, you know, all the civil rights issues and uh, uh, social welfare issues, right? Which are of course super important. Um, are you going to focus on that, which is going to get you reelected and give you the uh, the the public support to continue to have legitimacy and authority and and fight these battles, or are you going to pick a fight with the U.S. military? <laughs> right? um, of course, of course, they don't do that, right? Yeah, well, exactly, right. So my thing is, um, you're working with. Tell me again. I should know her name by now. Who is the woman you're working with in Texas? Yeah, so so Jan McDowell, she's running for Congress, uh, the 24th uh, Texas District against uh, Republican Kenny Marchant, who has held that seat for many years. And uh, last year, uh, Jan got about 46 percent of the vote. Uh, so we think this district is swingable and uh, and that's what we're focusing on. Of course, you know, Jan is a. Uh, one of these very thoughtful and considerate and smart um, Democrats. She's a, spent her career as a, as a certified public accountant, so she's pretty smart on all things financial. But the reason she got into into politics was not to reform the the U.S. military. It was to because she doesn't have any experience there. It was to to fight for these things that she cares about, right? And so we're trying to get her smart on this. Uh, but uh, you know, let's say we get 
her into the Congress. You know, she she's going to have a really hard time saying, hey, let's cut the defense budget for the reasons we just talked about. So I'm curious, where does that leave someone like me and you? What you know, is is there because this is something I don't actually have any even beginnings of an answer for, which is like, what do we do? What can we do to help affect a certain amount of change in the sense that I don't think it's I think we would both agree. It's not really out of bounds to ask the military to be audited by an outside department like most departments, most places I've ever worked. You sooner or later have to submit your books to some third party and they sit down and they they go through and they ask you a bunch of questions that make you mad. And you're like, well, because I was out and I needed to buy Dunkin Donuts for everybody at the meeting and I don't understand why this is a big deal. And and then it becomes not a big deal. They're like, yeah, you just had to say that you had to keep the receipt. Um, Right. And sometimes they'll be like, you can't you can't spend on certain things to have someone sit down and do that is pretty like pretty standard in a lot of sure. I don't know how the for-profit world goes, but in the uh, nonprofit world, thing, someone has right? to sit down with you and do that once yeah. a year. Yeah. Especially a big corporation. And I've, I've, you know, worked a little bit with big, big corporations now, you know, they have a sort of a centralized corporate accounting process. And even if you have different divisions that have their own budgets and sort of operate independently from time to time, the corporate auditors will will come to to that division and look at all the books and say, "Hey, you know, what's what's going on?" Of course, you know they they have to you know that show a profit, right? They have to end every year with more money than they started with, <laughs> uh, and if you don't do that, then that's when you tend to get a lot of uh, a lot of uh, attention, um, and that's just not a thing that. Um, uh, the military has to contend with. Of course, they shouldn't, right? The, the, the U.S. military should definitely not be in the profit-making business, uh, but you don't have that natural forcing function of, you know, trying to make sure that you end up the year with uh, with a certain amount of money in the at the bottom line. True. So what, I mean, is there is there anything you and I can do? Like, yeah. How do we affect culture? Right. So uh, it's going to, so there, so there is, not, there is not going to be a single comprehensive effort that's going to top to bottom audit the Pentagon and say and, and point out where all the different areas of waste are. Right. That that that's just not going to happen. It's it's too big a job. The military is too big. There's no political appetite for it. It would be a huge endeavor. Um, there's no sponsorship for that sort of effort. It's not going to happen. But what? Not even I made a hashtag. Hashtag audit the Pentagon. <laughs> and you promised you to could, share it. <laughs> you could. You could. You could try. <laughs> Okay. You could you could try, but um, I'm, I'm dubious of the prospects. Uh, but what does happen uh, on a pretty much continuous basis is that there are studies of certain aspects of the military. So there's an organization called the General Account- Accountability Office, the GAO, and uh, they are a nonpartisan organization that is chartered by Congress to go around and study different things and make sure that taxpayer money is being used efficiently and effectively. And they are constantly studying different parts of the military, different uh, acquisition aspects, different employment aspects. And, uh, you know, they, they do these different studies. And they um, they then you know identify certain uh, 
conclusions and then make a list of recommendations. And then it's up to Congress to implement or not implement those recommendations. So if you go to G, uh, uh, GAO.gov, uh, you can you can see all the hundreds of reports that they produce on an, any given year. You can read the executive summaries and you can see what they're what they're um, recommending. And if any of that sort of resonates with you, if there's a something that has to do with a military base in your area or a part of the uh, military industrial base that you're connected to, or uh, maybe it's just something that, that it catches your interest uh, like the F-35 or something, then you can go to your representative and say, Hey, here's why, why haven't you implemented these, these uh, congressional recommendations for these specific items? At least then you can, you can encourage a little bit of marginal reform, if not an overhaul. And do you think, and, and do you think that, like, let's say I call my, my, um, my house rep uh-huh. is a gentleman named Dwight Evans, and, and I'm pretty pleased with most of the things that Dwight spends his time voting on. I have a little app, tells me when he votes, mm-hmm. um, countable. It's a, it's a good one. It's a good one. Unless, unless you get angry easily. Because yeah, because you have three reps, and they tell you what each of them vote. So sometimes they're like, oh, "This guy did this," and you get really mad. But um, it tells me when he votes and things like that. But uh, so let's say I'm, I'm I'm really into what he's doing, but I call him and I say exactly this: I went to the GAO, and I think that we could cut back on the following things. How? I mean, how realistic is is it that that will affect much change, or do I need to get a group of people together and at least have like ten to fifteen people making the same request? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, what what it would take is, it, you know, because the, the Congress has hearings all the time about all kinds of things, right? And, you know, the, the senior, senior uh, leaders of the military, senior administrators are constantly having to go before Congress and talk about all the different things that they're doing, right? Uh, and I, mean, so- I saw this. This was at the end of the Bourne movies. They had to go and do this. And I think they like discharged Jason Bourne like seven times. <laughs> That's right. Something like so that. So I'm not right? super confident in <laughs> where this is going. Well, Jason but, Bourne kept killing people. But when when members of Congress and I can tell you this from experience, having worked a little bit in the Pentagon and at different headquarters, when members of Congress, uh, you know, write a letter to or send an email to or even call a general or a senior military administrator, civilian administrator, and ask a question, that question is going to get some attention, right? Uh, and then that general is going to turn to his or her staff and say, hey, what, what is going on with this? Why am I getting these calls from these senators? I don't like this. Give me some answers, okay, so right? It sounds like, okay, so that's actually kind of helpful. So what it sounds like is that if I were to call Dwight, yeah. uh, what it would come down to is I might need to make a concrete request. Yeah. I think that this is wasteful. I would really appreciate it if you wrote a letter. Not that he's going to do it just on my recommendation. Right. But I think this comes, and this kind of comes back to like when I call, uh, you know, different senators or different congressmen for different reasons. It does help if you have a thing you want them to do. Like calling up and saying like, uh, Listen here, uh, I think we spent too much money in the military, yeah. you know, and then and then they're like, anything else? Like, that's it. Got to go. <laughs> right. That That's not I mean, I'm sure that everyone could have guessed that wouldn't be super effective. Right. But I do think that one of the things that a lot of people that I run into, um, one of the things that they they're challenged with is like. 
like how to make these calls or like like if you and you have to ask for for a thing an actual thing that can be done instead of saying like hey i think we're in too many places in the world yeah um you know that's that's a pretty broad thing but to say like hello i'm calling because i don't believe we should be in and then you name an area of the world syria we're not yeah. in syria sorry um but you know what i mean yeah. if i was to call and say like i don't think we should be in west africa now you my my um my congressman may agree or disagree with me but that is um that then he's like okay thanks yeah but if i call and say i would really like you i really think that we should not be in west africa and i would i would like you my representative to write a letter and find out why we're there that's right or i need you to write a letter and say we need to leave or something like that yeah a little more helpful than just calling up and sort of even though it can be cathartic (laughs) to call up and be like you vote wrong it can (laughs) um like at the end of the day like you're not really moving the needle right right you 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 need to you need to have specific things uh you know especially like you know if if a if a if, a, if there's a member of Congress who has a member of their constituency somehow harmed by the actions of the DOD, whether that's a uh, somebody in uniform who got killed or injured in some far-flung part of the world, or uh, you know there was a, a questionable contracting process uh, that resulted in a sole source contract award to an out-of-state company at a base in your area. Uh, you know, but as a result, a local company was was actually harmed, or something like that, right? If you go to your representative and say, "Hey, we were injured by by the DOD," they're gonna they're 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 gonna do something about that, right? They're gonna call, they're gonna write, they're gonna ask hard questions, and military leaders are gonna have to uh, are gonna have to respond, right, one way or the other. And then it's just a question of of the you know uh, of the doggedness of your representative to uh, demand some accountability. Uh, now it's really tough to know what all these different issues are because the military is so big. Uh, and now that I think about it, asking sort of individuals to go to the GAO website and start reading reports is is kind of a big ask. <laughs> well, it's funny. I, I, I wasn't going to mention that, but when you said that, um, I've done things like that before and I'm like, yeah. I, I'm like, that's, that's. That's like document quicksand. Like right. You don't know. Right, you right. don't know. And who has time to, for that, right? Well, so, that's exactly right. So but what, it's not a it's not a bad thing to know that it's out there. Right. I'm gonna put my brain to it. I don't have an I don't have a solution yet, but there are well, there's gotta be a way to like find you this know, stuff in a way that's a little more now that I'm th- now that I'm thinking through it, because what I you know, I I don't go to the GAO website uh, every day and start reading reports. What I do is rely on people who do. Right. I spe- and I especially rely on journalists who uh, are steeped in this stuff and who are who really track this stuff down. Uh, and some of those journalists are uh, Dexter Filkins, uh, Fred Kaplan, Thomas Ricks. Uh, so, you know, you can go to Slate.com, you can go to The Atlantic, you can go to uh, foreignpolicy.com, um, and you can read the articles of these journalists who's, who make it their job to know about these things. And they're, they're pretty good, right? They're going to they're gonna tell you about these things, and, and maybe that's the basis, the jumping off point that you can use. Uh, you know, find, find some print journalists, not, not cable news. Don't, again, don't, uh. don't, don't watch cable news 
uh, any variety, don't do it. Uh, you know, go to print media and find uh, rep- uh, uh, journalists who sort of represent your way of thinking about these issues and then rely on their reporting. And then uh, if you want to back it up by doing a little bit of research uh, on the government websites, you can do that. And then go to your representatives, demand specific things, and don't let them off the hook until they have answers or until they uh, force some sort of change inside the vast bureaucracy that is the U.S. national security establishment. Yeah. And I have to. Uh, add to that 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 it is man it's it's so big like you were talking about and we do have to it it does have to be like little victory after little victory at least in the in the short term um probably in the long term too you know the 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 sort of like the giant apparatus (laughs) that we want to reform did not become a giant apparatus um over the course of like two or three years no it took decades and decades so we really have to it really is on us, and I think it's tough. You really, at least I can, I can only speak for myself, but you really want it to be on someone else. You really want to, you really want to be like, you know, hey, Dwight Evans, you you handle this. But the thing is, is if I'm not calling, if I'm not calling, and I'm not reading print journalism, and that yeah. was actually something really uh, we don't talk as much on here about is the institution of of journalism and how like it's really invaluable people who are doing this work yeah. because you're right like you one cannot go to a government website and just start reading reports and hope to have a good handle on this by next week yeah it's uh it's really complicated and these people have been covering this stuff for years and years and years yeah and that's why they understand the nuances so i i would just say i would recommend that yes like you're saying like you know find what is important to you and find who's writing about it and find out like the intricacies and and then we just you gotta you you gotta call or write your representative. Right. Go to their town because, halls, ask hard yeah, questions. Exactly. And hashtag audit the Pentagon. I can't <laughs> I can't hashtag that enough. Yeah, <laughs> let's hashtag it. That'll go on. That's going to go on my signature. Someone's like, hey, I'm really glad that you uh, are coming to this daycare and bringing your kids here. Hashtag on. Um, they're like, That's who's great. this guy? So, well, Matt, I have to run. I actually uh-huh. have to go to um, a town hall. It's not a Congress town hall, but like an actual community Ooh. town hall event. Yeah. So, and I got to get there. But thank you for, thanks for sitting down with me. This was sure. really fun. Yeah. Okay. That, uh, th- thanks, Terry. I-, I love talking about this stuff. And uh, I'll see you over there. Yes, I will see you over there. Hashtag the boys are coming, <laughs> All right. Our boys are coming. The drums drum coming everywhere. So prepare. Say a prayer. Send the word. Send the word to beware. We'll be over. We're coming over. And we won't come back till it's over. over.